Good morning. Thank you again, Carolyn. I shared in the first service this morning that that song always convicts me. I'm not sure that I've... I want to be telling the truth when I sing that song, but I feel like that I'm not. I mean, let's face it. I'd rather have gold. How, how many of us dream? Um, uh, that's a, gr- a great song, and it's very convicting. Uh, and I think that it it teaches us, um, especially in the context in which we live in a the most affluent uh, society that's ever existed across the board in the history of the world. Uh, I'm not sure that that is uh, that song doesn't carry a heavier weight of conviction. So, thank you. Lord, as we explore 2 Corinthians today, I pray that you will explore our hearts and that you will take us to places that we're not accustomed to going to make us look more like Jesus. Thank you that your word is powerful. as your spirit makes it so. In his name, amen. We're continuing the year of the apostles, and we're talking today about 2 Corinthians, First and 2 Corinthians, probably written 56-ish A.D. from Corinth, as Paul carried on evidently a voluminous correspondence with the Corinthian church from Ephesus after he left there along with his companions and established the church in the ancient Greco-Roman city of Corinth. That being said, this past week's Bible talk was about the structure of 2 Corinthians, and if you want to know about that or, or explore more about it, especially with the fact that it, it's quite possibly a compilation of more than one letters uh, gathered together in one document. But, at this, but So if you want to know more about that, you can reference the Bible talk online uh, from this past week. In the meantime, today we're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 through 10. For brothers, we want you to know about the trials we have undergone in the province of Asia. The burden laid on us was so far beyond what we could bear that we even despaired of living through it. In our hearts, we felt we were under the sentence of death. However, this was to get us to rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He rescued us as such from deadly peril, and He will rescue us again. The one in whom we have placed our hope will indeed continue to rescue us. Now, this is the passage that We've landed on this morning, and I'll explain a little bit more as to why we're landing there today. But let me just say that, like a lot of passages in our Bible, there are quotable quotes that are used. I really appreciated Eric's account this morning of the trip to Washington, D.C., which is amazingly um, synthesizes with the message this morning. 
but about the Bible Museum and the is there many of those in 2 Corinthians. Um, we have one of them as a functional mezuzah in our home. Now, if you're not familiar with what I mean by mezuzah, it's a traditional uh, Jewish practice born from uh, the Bible in your Old Testament, which says that you're to put the Scripture on the doorpost of your homes, and, and there's a you can buy them uh, in any Judaica sales place, but basically it's a symbolic thing that's put on the doorpost that contains a scripture. Well, we've kind of adapted that with vinyl lettering over our door uh, going out in Corinthians chapter 5 as we walk off site. So we claim that functionally as our mezuzah at home. Uh, it's a great scripture to be constantly reminded. Another one that I think is one of the more principles uh, with God and with one another says in verse three, God and Father of our Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. And that principle really sets up the, the passage that we're looking more closely at today in verses 8 through 10. But the idea here is that what Paul is saying is that when we have gone through some sort of trial of some kind in our life, and God has brought us through it, that when somebody else goes through a similar trial, that we're the ones that are in a perfect spot to come alongside them and help them through it. Um, I recall the most dramatic example of that that I've shared um, and remember in, in my life was back in the 1990s in the church world. We had a teenage girl who went on a short-term mission trip to Mexico and she was down there with a the ministry and working and one night I got a call from her parents and they had just gotten a call from Mexico that she was killed in a car crash in Mexico and imagine going to their home night and just there. Uh, I just felt helpless. To speak. But I remembered that there was an elderly lady in our church who was a dear sister who had shared how many years before her teenage son had been killed in a car crash. And I immediately, of course, thought of her, and I called her at, the, at that hour of the night, and I said, you've got to help, because uh, you've been where they are, and you can be far more valuable to them than I could ever be. 
And, of course, she was more than willing to come alongside and to love and support them. But that's another example from 2 Corinthians. It's a powerful truth or a powerful principle. And as I say, it's just a few sentences before the passage we're examining today. So it really sets the context for this passage where Paul says that they were despairing of living through the circumstance where their life was in jeopardy Uh, presumably because of the good news of Jesus. We don't really know what the life-threatening circumstance was that Paul's referring to here. He doesn't say specifically. It's funny, I was looking at one Bible commentary this week on this passage, and the author suggested seven different options that it could have been, and even then said, but we don't know if it was any of these seven. It could have been something else that had happened to Paul that he didn't refer to in other Scripture So we just don't know. But what we do know for sure is that Paul was in a situation where he felt that death was imminent. And it was, as he says, a despairing situation. Now, the reason I I chose this passage, and I'm, I'm fascinated by it, is because... Unlike other passages, as we're looking at the year of the apostles and we're talking about the letters of the New Testament, and so much of our Bible, and our appropriately so, no, absolutely nothing wrong with this, I'm not, I'm not complaining, but so much of our Bible is what I would call abstract truth, especially in the letters. You know, like, like say, the book of Romans, for example, where Paul is, is laying out principles and truths that define our faith in Jesus and what that looks like and what it's all about. Um, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and you shall be saved. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a, an abstract truth that's a reality, but, but it's something that's shared as a fact that's to be believed and, and acted upon. But here in this passage, the reason I'm drawn to it and so fascinated by it is Paul is taking the lid off and he's letting us see inside his life. He, he, look, at, look at the words again. The burden laid on us was so far beyond what we could bear that we even despaired of living through it. Now, I mean, that's a guy that's being completely transparent about a circumstance in his life. How many of us, if, if you don't know, if you haven't heard of the Apostle Paul... Um, how many of us would agree that he's a big deal? If you haven't heard of him, he's a major player in the Bible, right? I mean, this guy would be right up there with one of the top names in Bible history, right? Top five easily. Okay, but here's a guy that is showing us that he's just like us. I mean, he's no different than me. He's no different than you. When they faced a threatening situation, they faced a trial, then he's got a reaction that's very similar to mine, and I suspect yours as well. And the reason I'm fascinated by that is it helps me see practically how to navigate that with Jesus. In other words, when, when Paul takes, ta- you know, takes off the, the, the covers, so to speak, and lets us see inside his heart, 
and how he navigates that scenario with Christ, it helps me to see when I'm facing the same kind of realities, how can I navigate them with Christ? So that's the reason I'm fascinated by this passage. And I want to talk about three takeaways from this passage today. And I'm going to introduce each takeaway with a, with a passage that reinforces the principle that Paul is talking about. You know, the best, in, the, way, the best way to interpret the Bible is with the Bible. The Bible is the number one commentary on the Bible. <laughs> so, in order to understand, in our hearts we felt we were under the death sentence... However, this was to get us to rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead, He rescued us, etc., etc. We were in despair. In order to understand that, first point to understand, I want us to go to John 15. And in John 15, Jesus is having the Passover meal with His disciples as they're celebrating the Jewish Passover. And John tells us about the conversation around the table that night. And part of that conversation is Jesus saying this to the, to the apostles. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you too. Now, and he, go, and he goes on later in that conversation to even get more specific about the danger of following him. The, the idea being that I don't know about you, but this, this is not, I would say, a, a recruiting speech that would be desirable. I'm, I've always remembered to compare this to um, the, the witnessing to the four spiritual laws that uh, Bill Bright, I believe, Campus Crusade, had the, it's, it's a wonderful tool. But, but, I'm, but I always think of a passage like this, and I think of the first lead line of the four spiritual laws is, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> well, Jesus said, oh, by the way, if you follow me, people are going to hate you. <laughs> okay, is that a wonderful plan? I, somehow I'm missing this. How, how do these facts coincide? But, but the idea is that Jesus is saying that identification with him is risky. It's risky. Now, the Apostle Paul, outside of 2 Corinthians, says in 2 Timothy these words. My, one of my least favorite passages... There's four or five passages in the Bible I just do not like. I wish they weren't in there. Pure and simple. Now, that doesn't mean they're not true. I just don't like them. I don't want that to be the case. But, hallelujah, it's true. And the Bible says what? In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Okay, is that not kind of the same thing Jesus said? So, the idea is this, is that the first truth, as Paul refers to this trial that they underwent in Corinthians, he said, is that trials are a normal result of following Jesus. Keyword normal. We, we, could, we could substitute expected, predictable. Now, we need to make sure, understand, 
we need to make sure that our trials or our opposition from others or unbelievers aren't a result of our own rude personality. Now, that, that's very possible. I've, I've seen that. I've observed it. I've experienced it where people, well, I'm suffering for Jesus. No, they're mad at you because you acted like an idiot. I mean, that's, that's really possible. But, but we need to make sure that the opposition is, is to Christ and, and, and not to us. Okay, that, that's, that's a nice um, caution there to, to, to remember. But the idea is to understand that we who live, and the majority of us, not all of us for sure, but a majority of us in the room have experienced this culture and this society that we've lived in all our life. I've been preaching 45 years. I have never had anyone tell me that my life is in danger if I don't say this, that, and the other in the pulpit. I've never had anybody tell me that. I've never had my... Now, there's some people that may have wanted to say that or maybe felt that way, but legally, I have never had anybody impose on me anything that I can or cannot preach. However... What we're told, and I, I don't have these numbers, I'm taking somebody else's word for it, but there are people who study these things, that in the previous century, that around the world, there were more people killed because of their identification with Jesus Christ than in the previous 18 or 19 centuries combined. That's the reality in the world today. We have people sitting in this room today who have served internationally and who have personally experienced violent opposition and been delivered from the same. And one of our uh, families that we support that are serving internationally with the Christian Missionary Alliance that are from our congregation, I'm, I'm not going to mention their name because we're online and where they are, but today, they literally cannot go outside the city where they live in the country where they are. Because this is one of the families from our church. Because people are being killed who identify with Christ. That, that's, that's real. That's happening right now. I think it's Voice of the Martyrs. Somebody help me with that. But I think every year they do a... They do a, a, a like a rating of the most dangerous places in the world to follow Christ. And it's like all the countries in the world. And the, the last time I checked their list, the most risky place to follow Christ was North Korea. Um, and then, you know, they went down from there. But, but there are literally millions of believers today across the world who are experiencing the reality of what Jesus and Paul talked about in a tangible way that's threatening to their own safety and well-being. So, we also need to understand that while that may be something that's not a desirable concept, but to reinforce based on Jesus and Paul and that... That's, that's normal. 
And, and, and Jesus said, if anyone's going to follow me, let him count the cost. Becky Pippard, in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker and in the World, talked about one time she was talking to someone in Israel about following Jesus, and they, they had a discussion about it, and, and finally got down to the point where she says, do you know of any reason you shouldn't follow Jesus? And the person said, well, at this point, I'm not sure that I can. And, and she said, well, let me give you a few. In other words, full transparency, because it may cost you your life. I mean, that's, that's what Jesus said. I didn't say it. Becky didn't say it. And Jesus said, if anyone's going to follow me, let them count the cost. Trials are a normal result of following Jesus. And Paul realized that and experienced it. All right, second point. To repeat Paul's words in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 1, he rescued us from such deadly peril, and he will rescue us again. The one in whom we have placed our hope will indeed continue to rescue us. Now look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, 38 and 39. So... I am persuaded, you see, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor the present, nor the future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God in King Jesus our Lord. Now, the idea being that what Paul is affirming as he faced death and as he reflects on in the book of Romans is that our Messiah King is unconquerable. And He even defeated death. <laughs> Pastor Carly was asking me the other day, we're talking about coming up with theme for Easter for this year, and I said, well, how about death loses? <laughs> or death dies. <laughs> the death of death, that's what I told him, I think. That sounds like Star Wars, doesn't it? Death dies. But, but, but the idea is that, that Paul lived in the reality that even facing death, that death wasn't going to win because Jesus had won. It, it, isn't it remarkable? Think about it, that we who follow Christ are trusting that the one we follow lived a life just like us, died a real death, lived to tell about it, and promised if we trust Him, He'll do the same for us. Now, now folks, I got it figured out. If Jesus doesn't come back, I'm going to die. Is that hard? Not just me, but you. I counted up the other day in the, in the almost 17 years that, that we've been serving here at Deltona Alliance Church that I've personally, and they said not all, but the ones that I have personally officiated 104 funerals in those 17 years. That's just me personally, not counting others that weren't officiated by me. My point is that I'm saying that that means that there were 104 people who sat where you're sitting 
that heard me preach about Jesus that have now seen him. And I want to make sure I get it right. I don't want anybody to stand up here and say, you didn't tell me. <laughs> my, my, my point is, we're, we're, short of the Lord's return ahead of time, we're all going to die. And the other thing I got figured out is that whatever happens then is permanent. And I know somebody that died... And he said it himself in Revelation 1 when John sees him in the vision. I love that great line by Jesus. Behold, I was dead, but I'm alive forevermore. <laughs> I've, I've shared with you, many of you remember the quote that um, I've, I've quoted many times of Susan Perlman, the director of communications for Jews for Jesus. Uh, and I got to see Susan two weeks ago at a meeting in Fort Lauderdale with several ministries that were there and had their leadership and I went up to her and I, entered, I said you may not remember me but I, entered, I said I've quoted you a bunch <laughs> and I just want to thank you and she said oh really I said yeah because back when the passion of the Christ came out and there was a huge uproar in the Jewish community thinking there would be a rise in anti-semitism because you know the Jews killed Jesus type thing Susan Perlman had this great line. She says, how can anybody be blamed for killing somebody who's alive? Hallelujah! <laughs> and he promised us the same. And Paul lived in the reality that even if I die, it's okay. Because Jesus has got that one covered too. So I can live with the freedom and the knowledge that even death can't take me down because it couldn't take Jesus down. Woo! I, I, I say all the time, my, my wife Tab said, what do people do with death who don't follow Jesus? I, I don't get it. I mean, what, what is option B? Tell me, what is option B? Well, I don't believe... Well, what do you... Are, is it some drippy sentimentality? I mean, what, what are you thinking? Folks, Jesus Christ is the only one who's got the answer for life or death, and his response to death is life. And then thirdly, go back to verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 1, and this was the passage that really, really lit my fire and caused me to preach on this today. Paul says, in response to his despair of being at the verge of death, Paul says, however, read this with me, however, this was to get us to rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now, here's the deal. Anybody here, and, and I know... It, I'm sure it's nothing compared to what Paul was dealing with. I, I get that. I'm not trying to trivialize Paul. But anybody here ever been in despair? You don't have to raise your hand. And, and, and the way I'm defining despair is a state of hopelessness. You know, where life just doesn't go the way we thought it should and certainly the way we knew God thought it should 
and we're bearing the burden of that and we go, God, where are you? Have you forgotten me? Anybody ever been there? That's despair. As I would define it. And I don't know about you, but I don't handle that well. You know, and the reason it's jumped out at me, God has been convicting me lately. My faith is not what it should be. I'm not to mean I don't have any faith. It's just not strong enough. What about you? And here's what Paul gives us this insight into his psyche, insight into the way he views life, insight into how he handles these desperate situations. Look at what he says. This was to get us to rely not on ourselves, but on God. In other words, he saw every challenge, every trial of life simply as a means to a greater end. He saw even living, thinking his life was going to be taken and living in that reality, he saw that as just something to help him get closer to God. Something to make his faith stronger, to experience the presence of God in a new way he had never known before. Think about that. What if you had a perception on life that no matter what came your way, you viewed it as something God would use to make you closer to Him, more like Jesus, and help your faith be stronger in Him? How would that transform your whole approach to life? And then Paul gives us a companion thought as to what motivates him in Philippians chapter 3, which is the same thing I think he's saying in 2 Corinthians 1 when he said, this happened just to strengthen our faith. He says, yes, I gave it all up in order to know him, that is to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And what did he give up? He gave up his prestige in Judaism. You know, hey, I went to Gamaliel school. I got the degree and I'm a Pharisee or Pharisees or whatever he, whatever he called himself. Tribe of Benjamin, right? Maybe. Whatever. Paul says, when I came to know Christ, I considered all those accomplishments and all that stuff that I thought was important. He literally says, it's manure. Because I have found the ultimate. I found Jesus, and I found that He's more desirable than anything I've ever encountered. So my whole life, and then He says, and so I want to know Him and the, and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. In other words, whether it's something that is a positive experience in life or something that's a negative experience in life, if it'll get me closer to Jesus, bring it on. Bring it on. I don't know about you, but that's where I want to be. And because Paul was there, that means we can be there. That means we can be there. And 
So what I think the third truth is, is that Paul viewed every trial as a way to strengthen his faith in God. He viewed everything as a positive springboard to getting closer to God. Come what may. To learn to trust God in a new way he had never had to trust him before. I think that's a pretty powerful way to live in the reality of Jesus and the power of his resurrection no matter what we're going through. And, 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 and what does that look like? I mean, I, I, can't, I can't identify. I mean, I've never been in despair, in fear of losing my life for Christ. I mean, it may happen one day, but it hadn't happened yet. And I'm grateful for that. I mean, anybody that wants pain and suffering, I mean, that's something weird going on right there. But, 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 uh, but, but I, and so any example I'd use to be trivial, but, I, but I've, this is one I, that I share because it's poignant to me and it's a real experience and it reminds me, um, I, I, I haven't shared it for a long time, but when I was growing up, we always had two cars. There was one decent car and that was for mother. There was another one that was my father's, which by default sometimes was mine when I got my license, that really wasn't very nice. I remember one time the cars he would buy would be so bad, my mother actually called the junkyard and had them come tow a car in front of the house that he was driving and take it away. It was that bad. So anyway, one time he had an old car... And I was in college, and I was going to drive that uh, to class. I had a test one morning, early class with a test. And I'm driving up two miles away to campus, and that thing quits on me. I mean, it just quit on the side of the road. Is there anything more, especially when you're in Washington, D.C., to have your car break down, right? You know, that's when you should take your mechanic with you, okay? <laughs> and uh, the idea being that, uh, so I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm crazy. I'm out of control. Kind of like the way I was at the airport at the mission trip last April. My wife says, get away from me. I don't want to be around you. <laughs> and, and, and so I'm, I'm standing there, and I'm so mad. I'm kicking this car on the side of the road. I'm kicking it, you know. And then the Lord just reminded me in Thessalonians, give thanks in all things, in all circumstances, give thanks. I didn't mean one word of it. All right, Lord, I thank you for this junk pile of a car, this stupid car that will not run. Thank you, Lord, for this awful car. <laughs> you know, and I just start saying that. I keep repeating. And you know what? Something happened. Within about a minute, I didn't care that the car wouldn't start. And I actually was fine okay well we got to figure this one out it transformed me now the car never started but it changed me because I saw it through the lens of Christ not my own concerns now that's a trivial example I don't mean to trivialize dramatic things I get that and that's very trivial 
But I want you to know that Paul teaches us that it's possible to live a life in the reality of Jesus that makes no sense to anybody but gives us a peace in the midst of despair that is invaluable. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are bigger than anything that can ever happen to me. I thank you that even death is something that you have already conquered and because of trusting you, you've told us that we conquer it. I thank you, Lord, that Paul in his life was able to write, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and called according to his purpose because he had experienced it as he reveals to us in passages like Corinthians. And Lord, by the power of your grace, I pray you would get us there. This morning, everybody in this room that is despairing over something, may they have the power to stop kicking the tires and start praising you and thanking you that in the midst of the despair, they recognize that the problem is not the circumstance they're in, the problem is they're not enough like Jesus. So Lord, teach us to trust you like we never have before. And those who agree said...